Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today's episode is New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Highest Happiness. We'll be discussing how modern neuroscience paired with ancient wisdom can illuminate practices that help us to cultivate inner peace and happiness in today's increasingly complex world. I'm delighted to be joined today by return guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and New York Times bestselling author. His six books have been published in 30 languages with over 1 million copies in English alone. His free newsletters have 215,000 subscribers and his online programs have scholarships available for those with financial need. He's lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard and taught in meditation centers worldwide. An expert on positive neuroplasticity, his work has been featured on CBS, NPR, and BBC, and other major media. Rick began, began meditating in 1974 and is the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. His most recent book that we will be discussing today is Neurodharma. Welcome back to the Yoga Hour, Rick Hansen. I'm really delighted to have you as a guest again on the podcast. Well, Laurel, I'm pleased to be here, and I want to say hello to everybody listening or watching, and uh, to say that I, I was feeling as we began here the sacredness, the, the significance, not the proprietary specialness. These are teachings for everyone. Our true nature is our birthright, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, and there's something valuable, I guess I would just say it like that. There's something valuable about what we'll be exploring. Uh, and uh, I'm really glad to have the chance to do that with you. Mm. Oh, me too. For listeners, I did want to point out that there are three prior episodes of the Yoga Hour featuring Rick Hansen in our archive, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. There is one in particular called Cultivate Contentment and Change Your Brain that I think is particularly uh, wonderful. So you might want to check that out. Before we dive into our dialogue about neuroscience and spiritual practice, let's begin with a yoga moment, a moment of contemplation of present moment awareness. Oh. So let's begin right where we are, whatever we're doing, and just bring our attention to our body in space. Whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving in the car, just paying attention for a moment to our body and feeling particularly the surfaces that support our weight. And then bringing our attention to our breath, this wonderful tool that's always with us and just paying attention and noticing as we take a fully conscious breath, the next inhale and exhale. 
On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. Then just staying there, following our breath. Here's something to contemplate from Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien's book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Contemplate the possibility of enlightenment now. Try it on and get used to it. Contemplating enlightenment is not the same as experiencing it, but it can be a helpful way to open ourselves to our potential. Cease thinking enlightenment is only for a select few. The same self, the same infinite potential, is within all. So once again, Rick Hansen, welcome back to the Yoga Hour podcast. I'm really excited to have you on the show to talk about your book, Neurodharma. The book seemed to me, since I'm familiar with a few of your prior books, it seemed like an enlargement and updating of the neuroscience behind some of your other books. And I wanted to ask, why? what gave you the title? What? Why did you title the book Neurodharma? For me, that book is really a culmination and a integration of many, many things and a real swing at the highest reaches of human potential. I mean, as the quote you read said, uh, awakening is really for everyone and it's both a process and a destination and an ongoing underlying reality along the way, which is all really quite remarkable. And so for me, I, I'm really interested in that fundamental process, and it's important to explore what's it like, to, what do we mean to be enlightened, what do we really mean to be fully awakened, including those aspects of it that are grounded in regular reality, whatever might be transcendental, infinite, and timeless. So in regular reality, the great saints and sages throughout history who have walked up, as it were, the mountain of awakening following many different routes have taken similar steps along the way to cultivate and stabilize certain fundamental qualities of mind and heart. What are those? And then once we understand what those are, we can ask the question, whoa, how are they embodied in our flesh, in our nervous system and in, in our brain in particular? And modern science increasingly is helping to answer that question. In other words, neurodharma, uh, if dharma simply means truth, the way it actually is, and it's a word that speaks to how we can know ourselves from the inside out, the truth of our own experience directly, our own, it's called first person uh, form of knowledge from the inside out. Neuro is a way to also understand ourselves objectively from the outside in, uh, based on what's called a third person perspective of science. The great teachers, the great sages, the Buddha and others did not need an MRI or an EEG to awaken. On the other hand, we've learned something in the last 2,500 years. And if ignorance is the root of all suffering in some ways, it seems to me foolish to just cast aside um, the actual embodiment of awakening. People can give talk to embodiment, 
but actually blow right by it and not consider, well, what are the embodied causes and conditions of this moment of inner peace, unconditional love, and deep uh, wisdom? Right? So that's what got me interested in this. And for me, neuroderma is where these two perspectives on ourselves meet. We can know ourselves from the inside out. We can know ourselves from the outside in. And in uh, neurodharma, we can know ourselves in both ways, moving back and forth between those perspectives, really focused on practice. It's not a book of theory. It's a book of very deep practice that's accessible, you know, in the beginning of the path, in the middle of the path, and even toward the upper reaches of its end. Mm -hmm. You talk in the book a lot. You cover a lot of the current... Um, science, the current neuroscience of what we know. And obviously you point out there are still things, many things we don't know. Yeah. And there we know a heck of a lot more now even than, you know, 20 years ago or, you know, five years ago even. Um, and you talked about how understanding the possibilities, understanding the brain a bit actually um, can be helpful in our spiritual practice and in, in particular about motivation. Would, would you say more about that? Yeah. Well, I, I guess first, I would say if, if someone had an interest in, in yoga and the, the physical aspects of yoga, respecting obviously the multiple limbs of deep yoga practice, but the physical aspects, um, you know, a person might say, well, I, I'm really interested in, in yoga and developing myself in terms of yoga and getting better at yoga um, and not know anything really about kinesiology or, you know, how the muscles work or the, you know, the connective tissue or how, how, you know, how you can integrate all of it together, fine. On the other hand, a person might say, you know, I'm really interested in this. I'd like to know more about how I can actually, how does it happen that muscles stretch or become more flexible or connective tissue stretches? How is it that the blood can move and there can be a sense of aliveness? How is it that I can have a more integrated sense of my core interacting you know, with the rest of my body? And I'm gonna use that information directly in my own uh, development. It would seem like a really, really useful thing to do. And I'll just give you two examples maybe that are, I think, super relevant here uh, for a little knowledge about what's under the hood, you know, inside the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut, right, inside <laughs> our brain. Um, one is really an appreciation for how the brain evolved over 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system to have a negativity bias that makes it like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And this helped our ancestors live through Jurassic Park, the Serengeti Plains, the Stone Age, Game of Thrones, and deal with a lot of difficulty today, right? right. And sometimes even today, you know, um, there's a place for the negativity bias, which makes us overlearn from painful, stressful, quote unquote, bad experiences, and underlearn from enjoyable, useful, informative, positive experiences. Um, and so, on the other hand, though, that negativity bias makes us um, overreact to stress and um, it makes it difficult for us to learn and grow in positive ways. So just tracking, oh wow, I've got a brain that's like Velcro for the bad. That doesn't mean I resist painful, stressful experiences because then I just have more of them. It does mean though, not dwelling there, not ruminating on them, not reinforcing them again and again and again. And it also means really tilting toward um, developing wholesome, beneficial qualities of mind and heart, not 
getting caught up in positive thinking or rose-colored glasses. I don't mean that at all. Um, but I do mean when you really take into account your brain's negativity bias, it really shifts your focus over the course of your day. And the way I kind of summarize this in three steps, deal with the bad. Deal with whatever is necessary to deal with and also turn to the good. Recognize the good out in the world, in you and other people, what is working, the good intentions that are present, your own innate goodness. Recognize that. Turn to it. And especially when you turn to it, take it in. Mm-hmm. Don't let that beneficial experience, that moment of calming or love or heartfeltness or reassurance or sense of worth or insight into the oneness of everything, don't just let it wash through your brain like water through your sieve while negative experiences get caught. Slow down for a breath or longer to take in the good. Feel it in your body. Let it really sink in. Focus on what's rewarding about it, what feels enjoyable and meaningful to you, which will intensify the actual conversion of that experience into a lasting change of neural structure and function. As people awaken, things change in their brain. If there's any lasting change of mind, must involve change of brain. And by mind, I mean everything, love, depth, intuition, imagination, heart, all of it, must involve lasting change in the brain. How, we count, how can we facilitate positive lasting change in the brain? That's one thing that's really useful. Oh, bingo, negativity bias. Right. There's a second one that I find is really central to meditative practice in everyday life. So as we evolve, distinct from our primate cousins, we're among the six great apes. Woo woo, right? <laughs> Our other great ape cousins don't have this part of the brain. This part of the brain essentially is a strip of cortical tissue on the midline that enables us to do mental time travel. Go into the future, go into the past. Uh, it's adaptive. It helped our ancestors you know, survive. That's why we developed this metabolically expensive piece of you know, hardware, organic hardware inside our head. Um, but on the other hand, Wow, we can get so trapped in the simulator you know, with all these little mini movies running in our mind, you know, projecting the future, imagining the past, typically negatively tilted. Research shows the more time people spend in the simulator, the more negatively tilted it is. The front part of it tends to be focused on tasks. The rear part is the default mode network, so-called, or intrinsic network, so-called, where basically we just kind of space out. And there's a little place for that. But... Negative rumination, resenting, being aggrieved, you know, beating yourself up again and again, that's not good. So much of what meditation's about is noticing when you've gotten sucked into the simulator, rip, and then coming back, right? right. Well, here's a simple trick based on modern science. Um, <clears throat> two things you can do to get out of the ruminator, uh, which, by the way, is also saturated with self-referential processing, me, myself, and I. And um, again, a little of that goes a long way. If you have uh, the knowledge and the understanding that the self-contraction is a major source of suffering and harm, you would naturally get interested in increasingly relaxing it. Well, a lot of self-related processing, the bulk of it happens in that midline strip. If you want to reduce activity there, two things. You could do two things that are just very effective. One, tune into your, to your internal sensations, much as you did in the uh, really sweet practice you guided us in in the very beginning. 
When you tune into internal sensations such as breathing and do what's called interoception, you engage a part of the brain called the insula on the inside of the temporal lobes. Excuse me while I hiccup. And um, the uh, insula, when it's engaged, particularly in this way, is like a circuit breaker and quiets activity in the default mode network. Yeah. Suddenly, and you, everybody noticed it when they did it, as soon as you tune into your internal sensations, you're present. You're in the present. You're no longer doing time travel. And um, you're also, interestingly, that typical sense of me, 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 me gets quieter as you draw attention there. So that's a quick one right there. Now, ancient yogis knew this. You know, they knew it subjectively from the inside out. But now with modern brain science, we really can highlight it. Wow, clocking a lot of time, reinforcing the circuitry in the default mode network is not good for us and others. I should, you know, train in becoming more habitually. We're developing positive habits. Disengage there. A second thing to do quickly is that as soon as we get a sense of things as a whole, our body as a whole, the room as a whole, gaze to the horizon, the world as a whole, whoosh, the bird's eye view, panoramic perspective, mm -hmm. mind as a whole, everything as a whole. As soon as you get a sense of things as a whole, activity in the midline quiets, you come right into the present, sense of self reduces, and um, neural networks on the sides of the brain get more active, especially in the right hemisphere for right-handed people, gestalt processing. So you have more of a sense of a whole. Right yeah. there, two simple things, or three really. Watch out for the negativity bias and take in the good along the way. Two, tune into your internal state when you want to come into the present and disengage from ego and go wide. Take a wide view, a wide sense. Um, gives you a bigger perspective and also helps you feel um, I think more grounded in the truth as it is. Wow, that was so great. And in particular, I just want to underline because um, I think in just about any of the practices of the um, approaches, spiritual approaches that, that include meditation, there's always this message about it's much better to have a steady practice. It's mm. much better to have a you know, a daily practice of a shorter duration rather than a one-time thing mm -hmm. that you do like for a longer period on the weekend. And I just want to underline that in what you said, that basically what you're doing is literally changing the brain, that we really are changing the brain. And this has been amply demonstrated by many studies that many of them you point to in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, again, I think motivating. It's like, it's not... Um, it's not nothing <laughs> to have a regular uh, sitting practice. You're actually physically changing the brain. You are, you know, as you were just saying, you know, getting out of that, uh, you know, that, you know, sort of midline area that you talked about and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, potentially, you know, widening your perspective. There's all these positive changes that go along in the brain with people who are long-term um, or even short-term. You even talked about in a, in a relatively short period of time, these changes can be observed. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, it's you know it's quite remarkable, really, um, to go into the science here. And a person doesn't have to be a scientist to to read the book at all. I mean, it's very direct. I, I summarize a lot of things. I have references in the back. Um, the reference notes are a thing of beauty, including me unpacking some key terms from early Buddhism and acknowledging different interpretations. Yeah, um, I would just second that. The book is really, really approachable. It's very, oh, very readable. Yeah. Quick read, actually. It, it's yeah. uh, it's great, and you and you put a an amazing amount of science in there, but make it very accessible. Oh, thank you. And 
I think in a lot of ways, the scientists at this point are a little, uh, in some ways, ahead of the practitioners. In other words, they know things that, or finding things out, they're learning things, that if you have uh, a little bit of practice under your belt, right, you can read these things and you realize, wow, that has a lot of implications. Wow. Like, here's another weird one. So now, <clears throat> well, our, our nervous system, especially the um, kind of deep emotional, motivational processing in it, our brain, <clears throat> human brain, has essentially the same circuitry uh, in, a much, in a more complicated way that a little mouse has mm. or a squirrel. I see the golden squirrels in our backyard running through the trees. And <clears throat> as you know, in the book, I talk about that a little bit to imagine, you know, to, to recognize they are having experiences too, mm -hmm. which takes us into our moral duties, really, as a very powerful species to the other species that we share this planet with who are sentient beings in their way. The squirrels, the monkeys, the dogs, the cats, the fish in the pond. You know, I, I wonder sometimes, what are the experiences of a spider? Right? Yeah. Like, wow, what's it like to be a spider? <laughs> now, now, all that said, I'm not trying to anthropomorphize and all that, but the point, the point is the, the physical hardware is quite similar. So you can study, um, you know, mice and rats and so on and, draw, and learn a lot about humans. Now, there are ethical issues with research on non-human animals, all of that acknowledged. I got it. That said, for example, um, when juvenile rats are playful, when their young rats are playful, they release neurotrophic factors. We release neurotrophic factors, which means basically little chemicals, you know, oozing in your brain that promote the growth of neural tissue, mm. that promote new connections, that repair, that protect. These are positive factors. So just as you said a little bit ago, regular practice, small bits, many times a day. Um, there's a Tibetan saying, moments of awakening, many times a day. Drop by drop is the water pot filled, as the proverb has it. So as we um, engage these little practices, we're actually changing our brain. So how do you help your brain change for the better? Mm -hmm. One way is to be playful, mm -hmm. to be playful. Yeah. And suddenly I began to realize all the stodginess and boringness and of so much spiritual practice. You go into these settings, it's like, if you look like you're having a good time, you know, like, whoa, you must really not be missing the picture. You know, if you're not miserable, you're not really practicing deeply. Right. And there's a place for opening to sorrow and be real about the world and have your heart, you know, just kind of blown open by, wow, so much pain. And when it's appropriate, that we can bring a kind of creativity, a playfulness, an openness uh, um, to our practice. And if you think about how young children learn, it's a lot through play. Right. Right. They develop mastery over different things. They get motivated to engage the world. They start to learn to trust more and more themselves, staying in relationship with their secure base, so their mom, their dad, their friends, you know, launching out into the world. Playfulness, releasing brain-derived neurotrophic factors and other sorts of things that promote and protect uh, positive change in the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to turn to the subtitle of your book, um, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. And mm -hmm. you write that all awakened people 
that awakened people all seem alike to me in seven ways. That was your quote. All uh, awakened people seem alike to me in seven ways. So I did want to touch on that. So can you briefly go through those seven ways? Yeah. There are many ways of talking about awakening. And my interest here is respectful to look across traditions. My I was raised a casual Christian, uh, casual Methodist, really, and uh, well, I have profound respect for Jesus as a teacher uh, and his realization and all that. That particular tradition, you know, I, I kind of disengaged from it for a while. I'm, I'm probably most settled in Buddhism, Buddhist training, Buddhist perspectives. I, I really appreciate the empiricism and pragmatism of uh, the, you know, early Buddhism in particular. And uh, which maps really well to psychology and science with still respect for mystery. But there are other traditions as well. Across traditions, Christian saint, uh, Jewish rabbi, uh, in, indigenous, first people, native people, teacher, shaman, um, you know, Zen master, just whew, uh, someone deeply practiced in secular mindfulness, you know, very, very deeply practiced. They all seem alike. They, they develop certain qualities fundamentally that as we identify, we can then reverse engineer from. We can start asking ourselves, well, how are those seven qualities in some ways present in me already? And how can I then nourish in that seed and help it flower and bear fruit? How can I develop myself in that way? What am I developing in the spiritual path? So I'll just name the seven and you'll see that a lot falls into these seven qualities of mind and heart that we can develop. So steadying the mind. And by the way, I talk about these as both the fruit and the path. In other words, these are practices that um, develop qualities that um, are really beautiful themselves and which further us in our own path of awakening. So steadiness of mind, stability of presence, second after second, breath after breath, without which we can't really do any other practice. Warming the heart. Warming the heart, opening the heart, strong heart, compassion, kindness, including for yourself, warming the heart. Think of all, so much of the spiritual path is about love, broadly. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Three, resting in fullness. Full, the fullness of a sense of in the present, of an enoughness, of uh, uh, an equanimity, a disengagement from craving that's grounded biologically in a sense of deficit and disturbance, something missing, something wrong, thus initiating a drive state in the meeting of our needs. So, you know, equanimity based on fullness in the present. Mm -hmm. And then uh, those three, and those three seem probably pretty familiar to people. Steadying the mind, warming the heart, resting in fullness, equanimity. And they cluster. Then the next three cluster as well. Being wholeness, feeling undivided, non-dual internally, undivided internally, accepting yourself fully and opening into a sense of the mind as a whole, mind as a whole, awareness included. Fifth, receiving nowness. That's my poetic way of talking about truly, truly being here now, mm -hmm. right now, in the power of now, in the present, as it arises and passes away continuously, resting in the deep recognition of impermanence. And yet the stability, in a sense, of the endless arising of this beneficent universe. Endless arising, endless arising. So resting in the freshness, which feels receptive. 
You're receiving now, right at the front edge of now, as it were. The great teachers are, they're now, they're in the present. And as the Buddha Dharma puts it a long time ago, therefore, their complexions are serene. (laughs) Okay? And then, uh, sixth, opening into allness, that sense of oneness, that sense of connection, the recognition that, in effect, you and I and everything are, are waves in a single sea, that we are each patternings of allness. Um, we have our individual lives, we have our duties, we have our responsibilities, we have our rights. And still, we are water. <laughs> All our ways are water. Uh, opening into everything. How do you actually do that? You know the joke, what did the Dalai Lama say to the hot dog vendor, right? right. Make me one with everything. everything. Okay, anyway. yeah. I love that one. <laughs> and then last, the, the most mysterious and kind of fundamental, finding timelessness. That sense of mystery of the Buddha talked about unconditioned, or more exactly, probably unconditionality, unfabricated, unconstructed, uncaused, therefore unborn, therefore not subject to passing away. What is timeless? What is ultimate? What is infinite? Uh, which, for many, for some people, they would use the word God. Uh, others would use ground, spirit, mystery. Um, I'm very open to the dogmatic, scientific, materialist view, you know, atheist view that, nah, the Big Bang, that's it, that's all there is, deal with it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Still, within the Big Bang universe, actually, we can find that which is a field of possibility, Mm -hmm. uh, such as, um, you know, the the, the field of awareness altogether. We can increasingly decondition ourselves from that which is conditioned. And me, I'm you know, I'm a transcendentalist, I think, and feel and experience and believe that there are supernatural factors and more profoundly, more ultimately, there's an underlying kind of imminent ground, the absolute, in which, mm-hmm. you know, material reality is unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you could just kind of feel it almost as an incantation, steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness allness, timelessness. Mm. And these qualities, yeah, as soon as you talk about them, you can feel, yeah, they're present already in oneself. Mm -hmm. And then how can we gradually Mm -hmm. both nurture them and uncover them? Mm -hmm. So they increasingly manifest uh, day to day in our own lives. Yeah, that's one thing that I really appreciated about the book in that, um, you know, you really deeply make that point that these are <clears throat> obviously qualities. Um, I liked how you described it as kind of both like the, the goal and the path, Yeah, you know, that this, we want to get there, but it's also what we're, you know, what we're building and that they're already present within us, which is definitely the, you know, the yoga perspective yeah. that these are things that we can build, that we can build. Do want to just take a moment and say as a reminder, this is Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour, and I'm here today with Dr. Rick Hansen, author of the book we're discussing today, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. You can find out more about Rick Hansen, his books, and programs at his website, rickhansen.net, and Hansen is an O-N-H-A-N-S-O-N, hansen.net. Um, and we'll also have these uh, links, this link to uh, Rick's a website on our website, theyogahour.com. So uh, getting back to our conversation, um, 
I really all uh, I really appreciated um, the the how practical how, how much practice you included in the book and I did want to give you an opportunity to share some of that with our listeners and in particular to me the level of anxiety that we're currently experiencing is just so high it's just unbelievable and maybe we can also talk about you know how some of that we add on you know as we can as we can come to recognize you know what part of suffering are we adding on to the suffering that's already happening but one of the things that i really appreciated uh, was um, the meditation you gave in the chapter called Steadying the Mind about feeling safer. That was part of a longer meditation, but I really liked that particular little piece about just feeling safer. So would you share that? Actually, you, is there anything you wanted to say about the feeling safer meditation before we dive in? And then I'd love it if you'd share that with the listeners. Um, well, first, if it's all right, I'm going to stretch and reach and grab my book. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, it's on, it's on page 63. That's really sweet. By the way, the essence of the book is summarized in the cover. Yeah. You know, the mountain of awakening. Yes. And to be clear, there are many, many routes up that mountain. But on each of them, we find people, including ourselves, taking the same seven steps again and again and again. Steps of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, nowness, allness, and timelessness. Mm -hmm. I just think that's super cool. It is. It so is. hopeful. So what did I write here? Like what? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> so are you going to let me read this and take people through it as a brief meditative practice? Yes, that's what I'd love oh, to do. Because that would be I my pleasure. You know, I mean, there was something to me about just this feel, yeah. this idea of feeling safer mm -hmm. that, seemed like it it was just such a good fit for where we are right now so yes i would love it if you would take us through this brief meditation yeah and if i could i'd like to introduce it so yes sure um you know i've the great teachers have been extremely clear-eyed about suffering and injustice now they may well have dealt with it at the level of the individual mind rather than becoming a revolutionary but they were very clear-eyed about it and no holds barred, typically, in their moral description of it. So when I talk about feeling safer, I'm really talking about uh, feeling as safe as you reasonably can in the present. If in the present, like, unfortunately, terrible thing, millions of people are not safe in the present in the Ukraine under the attack of Putin's war, uh, well, you know, it would be delusional to feel safe. Right. But you can feel as safe as you reasonably can in the present, wherever you are here and now. And what that helps you do, actually, is be more resilient. Mm -hmm. It helps you deal with the threats to the extent they exist without feeling flooded and overwhelmed by them. You're finding your footing. You're finding your ground. We must find a place to stand. There's a term from um, New Zealand, Maori people, I can't pronounce it, I won't even try, <laughs> that means essentially a place to stand uh, mm. without many implications from that in that term. So feeling safer helps us. It also helps us deal with a lot of acquired anxiety or temperamentally disposed anxiety that is an add-on to uh, just simply being strong and vigilant. You know, we can, I'm a long-time rock climber. And you can be in very hazardous situations. You can be dealing with a lot of threats. You can have a little, you know, tingle of anxiety around the edges to keep you appropriately on your toes without feeling flooded by it. 
A long time ago, the Buddha made the distinction between that which simply arises and passes away through awareness and that which invades the mind and remain. Mm-hmm. remains. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. It's what invades us and occupies us and remains that's mm-hmm. a problematic. And for many people, layers and layers and layers, understandably, but still layers and layers and layers of needless anxiety have invaded their mind and remain. So it's this, this practice of recognizing you're basically all right right now when it's true, recognizing protections when they're true, and bringing a kind of soothing and calming to yourself, much as you would to, a let's say, a child or a non-human animal, like a horse or a, a dog that's really spooked. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You, know, you would be helping them. Well, you can help yourself in that way. So it's in that context I'll walk us yeah. through this. Uh, yeah, and just... Pe- I just wanted to uh, harken back to something that you said earlier about these yeah. midline uh, cortical networks and our interior processes and how it actually has, um, you know, that you said scientists had looked at it and the more time that you spend there, the more negative it gets. And I yeah. do feel like, certainly I recognize this in myself, that whirling quality where you're caught in uh, something and you your mind can just not let it go. Yeah. And you just realize it's a it's like a whirlpool, you know, you're just sucked in and it is something that we can recognize in ourselves and then we can actually do something about it. And you gave some great ideas there of the interoception paying attention to our internal um, our internal uh, sensations, uh, stepping out and trying to get more of a big picture view, you know, uh, uh, touching into the whole. Yeah. I thought those were really, really great ideas. And I love this little meditation. So, Oh, sweet. Okay. And if people are listening on a recording, they can pause at different points if they want. And I will, I'll take, I'll move through it fairly directly. Okay. So yeah. here we go. Let's so take a big breath and kind of settle into wherever you are. Uh, um, I would recommend not doing this while operating heavy equipment, <laughs> but otherwise, you know, you just can listen to it. Here we go. Help yourself feel as safe as you actually are in this moment, in this moment. Be aware of protections around you, such as sturdy walls or good-hearted people nearby. Notice that you can still be aware of your setting even as you let go of needless fear. Be aware of strengths inside you, helping you feel calmer and stronger. Simple strengths like endurance, determination, commitment to the welfare of others and yourself. Be aware of any uneasiness, any unnecessary anxiety, and see if you can let that go. As you exhale, release fear. Release and let go of worry. Notice that you can solve problems. You can think about things clearly and realistically and productively without getting caught on the hamster wheel of unproductive worry. Helpless alarm is really toxic for mind and body. 
Notice what it is like to feel a little safer now in the present. Not seeking perfect safety, simply helping yourself feel as safe as you actually are in the present. If you're actually safe in the present, which means in the present you're not being attacked, in the present you're not in mortal danger, no shark is chewing on your leg in the present. Notice what it's like to really let it in and how difficult it can actually be sometimes to let it in in the present, how safe you actually are. Letting go of unnecessary guarding, defending, blocking, bracing, pushing away. If it's not necessary, you can let it go. And open to reassurance. Realistic reassurance. Clear-eyed reassurance in the present. Reassurance is a beautiful experience. <laughs> so is relief. Open to relief. Feeling calmer more peaceful and you can be aware of how letting go of fear helps to steady your mind as well as many other beautiful good things that's the practice oh that was really beautiful thank you so much your voice is really is really lovely oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I wanted to um, take a moment and comment that um, letting that feeling in, which you had alluded to earlier with the negativity bias, we've talked about mm -hmm. in a you know prior yeah. conversation, that um, letting those feelings in, letting those positive feelings in is so important in terms of holding on to them. Because otherwise, the brain is kind of like a sieve for these mm -hmm. positive experiences and the negative you know, we, the, um, those days that you have when right before you fall asleep, you're thinking back on the day and maybe there were like 15 mm -hmm. or 20 or 25 amazing things that happened to you that right. day, but you remember the one negative thing. Yeah, the one dish you <laughs> broke, the one email that was kind of snarky coming at you. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. One interaction with somebody that didn't quite go the way you wanted and that's right. what sticks in your mind. And so right. taking that, that's what I loved about that feeling safer meditation and why I wanted you to share it with listeners is just that experience of it's it, it can you can allow it to sink in mm. um, like uh, to me the images are like water into a sponge or yeah. like rain you know into the ground you know mm -hmm. just to let it sink in and just this feeling where you can actually feel you can imagine each of your cells opening mm. to that to yeah. that um, you know to that feeling of safe safety as safe as you can be right now, yeah. which yeah. is, like you said, not necessarily perfect safety, but nevertheless, it is something that's positive. And then it's those that can build mm -hmm. those, those uh, experiences, the positive and, and uh, dwelling on the positive rather than dwelling on the negative that can then build these, these uh, new neural networks uh, that uh, you kind of, ref you yeah. uh, alluded to. Yeah, well said, yeah. Um, basically, 
you know, what our mind rests upon becomes our shape, as it were. Where do you dwell? Where you dwell with your attention becomes what dwells within you. So if you want to grow strengths of various kinds, you know, steadiness of mind, warmth of heart, equanimity, insight, happiness, um, um, resilience of various kinds. If you want to grow those strengths, the, it's a two-step process. You know, rest your attention on those experiences when they are authentically happening. And also you can help yourself to have those experiences by doing practices of different kinds, such as listening to the yoga hour or <laughs> listening to that little meditation in the book Neurodharma, which I read in the um, uh, audio version of it. Uh, right. So you can help yourself have those experiences and then necessarily, as you highlight, so important. I'm so glad you highlight that, Laurel. We need to help those passing patterns of mental neural activation leave lasting physical traces behind Thank as you. the necessary basis of any lasting development of what we want to grow inside ourselves. Mm -hmm. right? And, and people yeah. usually forget the second step. Having okay. experiences is easy. Right. It's easy to have, you know, it's right. fairly, unless someone's terribly depressed or right. in the middle of the, the worst day of their life, right? But having some kind of beneficial experience is pretty straightforward. It's learning from it. Ha-ha. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cultivation. Right. It's, you know, bhavana. It's the actual process of cultivation right. that people routinely blow right by, right. Uh, chasing the next stimulus. And there's something humbling and modest and scruffy and determined about actually trying to help yourself learn along the way. Mm -hmm. And it really rests on this idea of neuroplasticity, which when I was yeah. in medical school in the 80s, of course, yeah. you know, we were taught literally that the brain has no other development. It's yeah. like it, it's all set. And then, you know, it's just kind of cast in stone. And, and I love that that's so different now. To me, that always seems so incredibly dumb. Because, I know, yeah. sorry, excuse me, <laughs> if a kid learns to walk instead of crawl or learn, drive a car or as an adult, you learn how to not argue with that kid, you know, <laughs> unnecessarily, uh, something had to change. Well, what was it? Duh. Um, you know, yeah. And right, right now, people, we have right now humans who are you and I and those listening, several hundred trillion synapses inside our heads. Mm -hmm. so, several hundred trillion little microprocessors, little connections between neurons sparkling away, uh, you know, weaving the fabric of consciousness, an, un, an enchanted loom, as Charles Sherrington you know, be, uh, really beautifully put it. So the point is that those microprocessors, those synapses, several hundred trillion to repeat my point, uh, they're dynamic, they're changing, they're evolving for worse and for better. You know, that's it. We have a nervous system that's designed to learn. What is it learning? And how can you help it learn, broadly stated, what would be good for you and others? That's the only question. You're learning things along the way. Are you learning anxiety? Are you learning irritation? Are you learning a sense of helpless outrage? You know, are you learning a sense that you suck <laughs> and you're doomed and, you know, no one will ever love you? Uh, or are you learning uh, resilience, steadiness of mind, lovingness, you know, a uh, fundamental stability of resilient well-being in your very core? That's the, that's the choice. You're learning one or the other. What are you learning along the way? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And powerful. I mean, a couple and of things that, responsible. that we've said. Right. And a couple of things that we've said, I think, are just so important for listeners is that, first of all, that these qualities really are 
um, available to all of us, mm -hmm. that this is something, and, and you, you yeah. go through this in such a beautiful way in the book of, you know, all these ways that we can, that we can build and develop these qualities sort of step by step. Yeah. Um, and that literally our brain responds to me. That's so hopeful, right? Yeah. That it, right. it actually responds. We're building a different uh, brain when we yeah. have a daily meditation practice, when we decide um, mm -hmm. to take a breath instead yeah. of going off into a uh, into a pre-patterned, um, you know, someone cuts us off in traffic and we, yeah. <laughs> you know, we there's that space where you have a choice about what you do with that. Yeah. And uh, anyway, I just find that, that all of the neuroscience really is empowering. It's personally empowering for people. Yeah. That's right. We can't do anything about the past. And even as the present arises, it is what it is. But we can always help we can always learn a little grow a little heal a little every day as we move into the future mm -hmm. i think what's the most important minute of your life it's the next one continuously mm -hmm. it's the one in which we're learning and, and developing and it's so hopeful wherever we start we can always each day learn a little grow a little heal a little awaken a little and day by day by day you know moments of awakening many times a day that then can change the entire course of our life mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Well, unbelievably, we're coming to the end of our uh, time together. It's just flown by. I always give a, a couple of minutes at the end of the show for the guest to uh, share any words of encouragement or inspiration. I kind of feel like you just did. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is there anything that you'd like to add? So words of encouragement or inspiration uh, for, for listeners who are uh, maybe they don't, um, they haven't been as aware of what's been going on in neuroscience. Maybe they are mm. thinking about uh, some steps that they want to take. Mm. What would you tell them? Uh. Um, well, <laughs> wow, what a question. It's a great question. A couple things, really from my heart, from my own experience. Uh, deep inside the core of our being, you know, kind of the innermost temple, uh, we can be pushed around by many forces, including other people. We can have a really tiring, stressful life. Absolutely. Whatever's true about that is true about that. And yet, in our innermost being, we can always learn a little every day, right? We can, in the broad sense. We can cultivate, we can release, we can heal, we can develop, we can become a little more skillful with others, a little more skillful with our own mind, our own thoughts and feelings. We can develop a little every day. We have the power there. No one can stop us in our innermost sanctuary from seeing what we see and uh, growing from it a little bit every day. And no one can do it for us. We are both free to learn and grow, and we are responsible mm -hmm. and right there. And to me, that makes it really honest. It's super hopeful. It's super hopeful. Uh, point one. Point two, love is the universal medicine. <laughs> what I mean by that is that um, that's in the broad sense, you know, basic appreciation of others, of friendliness, of goodwill rather than, you know, hostility and hatred, even as we stand against the forces of wealth and power as necessary to help the world come to a better place that's good for the many, not just for the few. Um, you know, we can not let hatred and hostility, uh, envy and greed invade our mind and remain. You know, we can keep our hearts open, including to those we oppose. 
right there. The sense of warmth flowing out and flowing in is a profound resource. And I think all the great teachers, they start with love and they end with love, and it's love along the way. It's love feeds us as it flows through us, and even if there are limitations, real ones, in, from, in getting the sense of feeling cared about genuinely from other people for all kinds of reasons, there are no limitations on the caring you can express and feel yourself as it flows out of you. Love feeds you as it flows out of you. We're not stuck. We're not uh, frozen um, in terms of the warmth of our own heart. Mm. So that, that's really great to realize. No matter how limited the reception is, you know, the receiving of caring, right. unfortunately, may be, um, there's not a limitation on finding compassion, friendliness, goodwill um, for, for others yourself, which will feed you along the way. Mm -hmm. That's the second thing that strikes me. Um, third, really, is um, to have some kind of practice, any kind. And they have something you do pretty much every day or you keep returning to in the flow of your day, a minute of meditation, you know, if it's only the last minute before you go to bed, or just a general ongoing um, focus for you. I mean, for me, a lot of my kind of focus in, in terms of my practice is uh, an ongoing sense of the ground of all um, while doing various things, you know, while being a wave, knowing I'm ocean, you know, kind of like that. And it's a work in progress, but that's your edge. You know, what is it? What's your practice? And other things too, disengaging from friction in the world. Uh, a lot of our suffering is based on friction of different kinds with the world. Uh, we can feel pain. We can deal with the anger of others, but in a, a frictionless kind of way in which we have, as I put it, mind like air. You know, it's moving through, but it doesn't land. It doesn't implicate us. We don't get caught up in craving about it. There's a kind of internal spaciousness and freedom. And we can cultivate that. We can develop that. Maybe that's something a person's developing along the way. So have a practice. So I'll leave it there. Yeah. First point, you know, freedom and responsibility inside your innermost being, which is really good news. Uh, second, love, the universal medicine. Third, have a practice, something you know that you're practicing and developing. And, return, and can return to. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Those are all just really, really great uh, pieces of advice. I appreciate them. Mm. You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Rick Hansen, author of the book we've been discussing today, Neurodharma. You can find out more about Rick Hansen, his many books and programs, including his podcast, Being Well, uh -huh. right. with his son, Forrest Hansen. They're all at Rick's website, rickhansen.net, and a link to that website will be on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Rick Hansen, for joining me today on the show. Thank you, for Laurel. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, we have daily meditation in the morning at 6.30, in the afternoon at 4 p.m., and on Monday evenings at 7.30. Uh, on all those are Pacific time. We also offer a Sunday satsang at 10 a.m. each week, and all of those, again, Pacific time. Uh, Yogacharya O'Brien is currently offering a satsang series on the five elements. You can listen to the first three satsangs of the series on the elements earth, water, and fire by going to her website, ellengraceobrien.com. Uh, join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I'll be joined by David Richo, author of the new book, Ready, How to Know When to Stay and When to Go.
The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. Thank you.